listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi there, welcome to a belated episode of uh, Sitting Now. This is episode 42, I'm Ken Eakins. Um, yeah, so our site changed. Um, <laughs> we had a virus that we've been trying to kind of manage for quite a long time, and um, it got the better of us, put simply, and it took us far too long to get it all sorted, but we are back now, and the site's all changed, and it's a bit more modern, I suppose, now, a bit more bloggy, so that's quite nice. I'm quite pleased with that. It means we can post more, because the last site was a bit of a pain to post to. Anyway, before we start talking about this week's guest, let's roll some adverts. What's better than shooting the shit about the occult? Shooting it with us, of course. I'm Avayel, tender loving co-host of Outer Symmetry. If you're looking for a podcast that covers everything from Lady Gaga to the Montauk Monster, you're in the right place. Myself and my husband Adamus pull you down the rabbit hole with us twice a month to keep you informed and up to date on all the topics you want to know about. So sit down, tune in, and fade out. Subscribe to Outer Symmetry today. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it, that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Eerie Radio at www.eerieradio.com. week we have a returning guest to the show, um, someone I've been hoping we'd have back soon, uh, Douglas Rushkoff. Now we've had uh, Doug on the site a few times, so uh, we don't have the traditional uh, brief biography that we tend to do at the beginning of every interview, so if you want to get a brief biography of Doug, just go to uh, some of our earlier episodes, I think episode 20 is the first time we had him on. Um, but yeah, no, Doug's uh, just written a new book called Program or Be Programmed, Ten Commands for the uh, Digital Age, and it's a really, really good book. I highly recommend everyone goes out and buys it. It's um, uh, Doug's way of uh, warning us about some of the pitfalls of the internet, as well as kind of reassuring, as he explains <laughs> some people. But yeah, let's roll to that interview now. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll speak to you after MySpace Heroes. Hi, Douglas Rushkoff. Thanks so much for coming on the show again and giving us some more of your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, so you've got a new book out called Program or Be Programmed. And uh, one of your early books, Siberia, was a kind of um, a, cha- a champion, in, as it were, of the of the possibilities of the internet. This book seems to be a kind of warning against the kind of effects of that almost. Is this kind of like a natural sequel to um, to Siberia in some ways? No, I don't see this as a warning so much. I mean, I think, oddly enough, I think most people um, who read Siberia, which which I know we might have taken as an optimistic look at uh, uh, the possibilities for uh, uh, designer reality, you know, spawned in part by new media technologies. I think most people looked at that and were 
very afraid. You know, that's a book, that's a book that said reality is up to the consumer, you know, yeah. that, that, we're, that we're literally making the world um, together as we go, that, there's this, that, that, that we're, we're participating in a kind of a consensual hallucination and that um, people are going to become aware of that and everything's going to change. Um, th- this book really um, is probably on some level reassuring to the powers that be because it says that, oh my gosh, with this internet and with our computers, with our new technologies from robotics and, and genetics to nano and digital, we have the ability to embed purpose into objects, into, um, into our technologies. We can, we can make something very much like life and we can remake the world um, in, in a fashion much more consonant with our actual values if we would only seize the capability. But, um, and the book says this too, but it looks like we're choosing not to seize that capability. It looks like we would much rather um, just do business, uh, do old styles of business in new forms than actually... Um, do things in a new way that we are, you know, content with the kind of 13th century style, you know, printing press, top down nation state, uh, uh, corporate driven reality. And we're either, you know, unwilling or as yet incapable of, you know, spending the week or two it would take us to learn how these technologies work, Mm. which would then necessarily utterly change our perspective on our ability to influence the world around us. Okay, so you you've uh, broken down the kind of book into ten commandments, as it were. I mean, what commands, the, com- yeah, commands, which are different yeah. than commandments. I yeah. mean, commandments are biblical era. You know, these are textual um, commandments from God or Moses to people for how they should behave. You know, commands are really the 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 lines of code that you use to drive technology. So I really saw it more as giving people 10, uh, 10 ways of, of using, of exploiting the, the digital realm rather than being exploited by it. So and I'm not telling people, do this, you know, <laughs> be commanded by me, but rather here's the commands for you to take charge. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, one thing that, the first thing that kind of struck me was that something I agreed with, actually, <laughs> something I'm probably very guilty of myself is, why have we chosen to live in a kind of always-on reality these days yeah it's a shame i mean i understand um i i mean i do and i don't understand why people want to be always on um the the concern for me is that it's it's so counter to the technology's bias towards uh um, asynchronous asynchronous kinds of behavior in other words the the power of and many people, I guess, won't remember this, but back when most people used the telephone, the big difference between email and the phone was that email messages just sat there, that you got to email in your own time. You know, email was always like voicemail. It, it, it waited for you. And now, you know, I find people, you know, attach their email to their bodies, you know, they have their blackberries vibrate every time some message comes through or they're working on something or talking to someone an email comes through and they feel like because that came through now I've got to deal with it um, 
as if it can't just sit there and wait. You know, they'll, they'll, you'll be in the in in a, a writing something, some long passage. You know, you're involved. This is what you're doing now, and some silly little email from something or someone will come through, and the person will feel like they've got to, for whatever reason, they've got to get to that first and clean clean out that inbox before they can get started with their day. And that's not mastering time. That's succumbing. It's succumbing to time or to, to a randomness. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the way that these technologies are, are structured um, is to function asynchronously. That's the way programs work. They're sequenced, you know, and the computer sits and waits um, as it should for the human command to move on, to, to kind of personify these devices to the point where we think that, that they're waiting for us and that we've got to then somehow placate them or deal with them is, is what's frying our nervous system. It's what leads to all of these uh, obsessive compulsive disorders where people are checking their, their email, you know, secretly under the table while they're eating with people, you know, and it's not like something's going to come through that matters at that moment. It's, it's being, it's, it's allowing your nervous system and your psychology to be programmed by the needs of the device rather than the other way around. Yeah, it, was, it, it just takes, it, it, I don't know when this point happened, because I've used the internet for a very long time as well, since, you know, probably not as long as you, obviously, but, you know, from the, I guess, like the late 80s, early 90s, and it used to be a, a thing of fun, you know, it used to have, like, real meaningful kind of uh, relationships with people online, and, like, you, I think the example you use is the well, for me, it was more like, you know, alt.raw, <laughs> that kind of thing, but... Uh-huh. Is has always on kind of destroyed that? Do you think now? Do you think that we're not actually having these kind of meaningful kind of dialogues of each other? Or... Well, I think a lot of people are not, or um, or having less than they could, or less than they should. Um, if I'm going to judge them, um, yeah, I think it it it's. I mean, it took me a while to try to figure out why. You know, when I used to I used to leave the net a session on the net feeling energized and. Uh, kind of more alive. And now, you know, it, it's quite the opposite. You know, now by the time I get offline, I'm like, oh, thank God, you know, get me off this thing. You know, that going through my inbox is, is work. It's become, you know, the, the net in many ways has become an extension of the things I like least about, you know, my life and my work. Mm. You know, on the other hand, if I do take and this is kind of back to the themes of the book, if I take a programmer's attitude towards that rather than the, the, just the passive receiver's attitude toward it. I'm not a passive user. I'm an active programmer. So I will look and say, well, why is this the case? Why has, you know, why has my inbox become the amplification of the things I don't like about my life? And what can I do about it? So then instead, if I say, okay, this is interesting. If my inbox now amplifies the things I don't like about my life, then it becomes a great tool for me to figure out what don't I like about my life and what am I going to get rid of? So if I'm starting to get emails from some kind of a, a, one of the things I do for work or not from work, and it's something that I, I dread and I see, then I go, oh, well, that's something I'm going to cut out of my life if I can, or if there's too much, you know, income coming from it, I'm going to figure out another way, um, another way to do that. So it's not, it's not being amplified so negatively. So, you know, any of these things, any of the phenomena we don't like can easily be turned around. Even if it's that, you know, you're getting uh, something 
you know, you've got to leave your phone on because you might get a call from your wife that the cat is sick or something. So you've got to stay available. But at the same time, if you leave your phone on, everybody's going to be calling you for all these things that you don't want to be disturbed. So mm-hmm. why don't you just go into your phone and program it so your, you know, your your wife has a unique ring, or is the only one who can ring, and everybody else is is ringer off. You know, these are this is not rocket science. It's just a matter of remembering that these tools are plastic, not cement. You know that they that the way they are to be used has not been set in stone by you know some outside force that this is all um it's all up to us mm. now one thing yeah you discussed that i found really interesting is the kind of social space and place that's kind of changed because of our technology um and i think the example you use is a girl called gina i was wondering if you could discuss like is she a kind of like an avatar do you think for a future kind of uh, generation or a current generation or well right i was writing about this girl i mean there was this there's this chapter in the book on place um where i'm basically suggesting that people live in the present or or, or live in person you know that that life happens where your body is um that the net is biased towards long distance exchanges and it's great for that like right now you know i'm talking to you you're in the uk and i'm in the states and we're using the net and this is great and it's free and it's blah, blah, blah. it's <laughs> wonderful you know if you lived across the street it would be really foolish of us to be having an hour-long interaction like this um although many people do i'm sure and this girl gina i mean she she's a uh it's not her real name she's a high school student although now i guess she's in college um she um she would go from party to party, and everyone's seen kids like this, goes from party to party in New York, and every party she gets to, she's just texting her friends to see and to share the results. You know, who's at the better party? Am I at the better party or at you? So they spend the first hour or two of the evening really just going from place to place and texting each other. No one actually participating in the party they're at, and everybody instead just just sending information back and forth about stuff that's happening somewhere else you know and i watched this process go on and i was wondering you know when you know when will it end will it end will they ever get to the place you know and they finally decide what the place is and you know we get there it's later it's got to be 12 12 30 at night by then you know we get to the party and once she's there all she does is she turns around her phone and starts taking pictures of that party and everyone is there and uploading it to facebook and sending out the twitters so she was never there she was never mm-hmm. actually at the party she was at that she was either looking for the party to be at or transmitting from the party she was at and that's that was odd. I mean, it's kind of like on one hand, she's just like a professional party finder and broadcaster. But on the other, she seemed to be modeling a behavior that I'm seeing increasingly, which is just people not being where they're at. It's the way, you know, tourists go to Paris with the camera and they take so many pictures of the Eiffel Tower. They've never actually seen it except through a viewfinder. You know, they've watched it from the perspective of the slideshow they're going to put on Flickr rather than the the being an incarnate human being, um, actually experiencing something. Do you think that could be because of sites like uh, Facebook kind of really super emphasizing the kind of social aspects, you know, like friend collecting, this kind of thing. And, you know, it almost, you almost seem to be kind of rewarded in, in a sort of social way for going to X places, you know, X place rather than being with X person. Do you think that could be? Right. And the reward feels more tangible. Mm. You know, the, the, the Facebook reward feels more real than the uh, uh, 
you know, whatever your your well, you, there's this there's these these things in your brain called uh, mirror neurons. You know, where when someone sort of nods at you or or their pupils get bigger or any of the normal um, social cues of of positive reinforcement come through, <clears throat> you you experience it um, positively as well. And uh, when when you're you know living in an internet sort of digital life, you don't get any of that kind of feedback. All of your feedback is reduced to the you know the arrows and the and the smileys and the thumbs up of various social networking sites or or the, the emoticons in your email. You know, so you end up experiencing the world much like a person with Asperger's does. You know, where you don't have any of the social cues on which people normally depend for their sense of, of how they're doing. And you replace those social cues with, you know, very kind of literal, um, uh, very uh, literal cues. Mm. And the more we live like that, then yeah, we are going to tend to start valuing, you know, what our Facebook page and number of friends says about us more than what people in the real world are saying. You know, if you can't even perceive of uh, if you've lost the ability to even, you know, um, do what you've been evolved over all this time to do, if you don't even see someone's pupils getting bigger, their you know, irises enlarging, you know, when you're speaking to them, if you no, no longer recognize that as a cue of, of positive reinforcement, then you're going to have to look elsewhere or you're going to value something else um, to get that, to get that experience, to feel connected, to feel um, approved of. Mm-hmm. I think you, you refer to it as the 7% society? Yeah, well, you know, at, at least as, as late as the mid-80s, um, it was measured that 93% of human communication was nonverbal. In other words, not the words you say, but either the inflection with which you say them or the way your body is, the way your head's tilted, whether you're breathing in unison with the person you're speaking to or whether you're breathing in a different way. I mean, there's all these other forms of communication going on between two people or more than two people even, you know, in the same space at the same time. And that's the 93% that gets left out online, you know, and sometimes even if you're using video, you're still not really seeing it. You know, if anything, you're seeing the person without seeing their posture, without seeing their breathing rate, without seeing what their pupils are doing. So Mm -hmm. in some sense, it's the worst of both worlds. You see the person, but you're still not getting any of the approval feedback. And that's why people end up getting paranoid and confused and wondering, what did that person mean when they were saying that? You know, and, and the parsing, a, as I've watched people do it, they'll parse like a nine-word SMS, trying to figure out, you know, how did the person, what are they really saying here? You know, I'll watch my wife, she'll get a, a one-word, you know, she got a, a one-word SMS from one of our uh, uh, parents of a friend of our daughters, and she's like, Look! Look at this. You know, as if, as if it it indicated something bad. I mean, maybe it did, but um, I think it's just when it's so devoid of context, um, it's much much easier to interpret things, um, kind of the wrong way or the darker way. Talking about context is that's something you talk about in the section about complexity quite heavily and. Uh how we're kind of we're starting to accept things like Wikipedia and well, in fact, we have probably for a while now accepted things like Wikipedia and uh, you know these kind of like group things as kind of a preferable source of knowledge to uh, like a lecturer or a you know a, a book. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean this this is to me very worrying as, as someone that went through the academic system. I'm, I know you did as well. I mean, does it 
it really worries me that um, the next generation of people might cherry pick knowledge, as you say, um, over, you know, actually going out and picking up a book and reading and, and gathering context. I know. Well, we're going to see. I mean, and the more people cherry pick knowledge, you know, the more you allow a Google search to uh, um, basically substitute for a research path, you know, the more vulnerable you are to um, whoever's putting those cherries out there. You know, it's, it's, you're not, you're not seeing anymore. It's, it's, I mean, it's all fine to use a GPS to get from place to place, but you can't um, allow that GPS, that map to replace the territory either. Mm. You know, there's still a real world out there that's not being represented on that map. You know, and there's something to be said for going off-road at a certain point, for going off the map and and um, actually finding something. Yeah, I mean, I, I I use the internet a lot and I I do, I guess, to a degree cherry-pick, but then I also read books <laughs> as well, I, I suppose. It's kind of a... There's nothing, I don't know. I mean, I could probably read a summary of your book and get, you know, kind of some of the information or I could read the you entire book. You get the gist, yeah. you know, and in many cases, the gist is okay. You know, I mean, the gist of, a, of an illness might be okay. The gist of a, uh, I mean, because there's only so much time. And uh, I do think human beings are getting better at figuring out the gist of things. You know, and figuring out things from the gist. There's this kind of almost fractal awareness that you can hear a few lines of Romeo and Juliet and kind of get, oh, I understand what they're, what this is. Um, yeah, you deny yourself the actual experience of it, but you can get the gist. You know what I mean? The gist yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, and it's just a matter of realizing that, you know, if you're spending all your time just getting gists of things, then life is passing you by. Right? The gist is fine for a task. The gist is fine for um, pretty much for doing things other people want you to do that you don't want to do. So you're going to do the gist so you can just get through it. Mm. But if you get the gist of life and then it's over, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> do you think, um, like, I know when I was at, I recently went back to university and did a bachelor's degree, um, <clears throat> which is weird because I did it the wrong way around. But um, I noticed that the students there seemed to prefer the gist, if that made sense. They didn't, I mean, when I was doing my master's degree, for example, the, the students there kind of wanted to learn, if that made sense. They wanted to read all the books and wanted this kind of, you know, to be an expert, I suppose. Whereas it seemed on the bachelor's degree, at least, that the kids were there and just wanted the gist of everything. They never actually wanted to kind of fully engage in the subject. Is that something you encountered yourself or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, to some extent, it's human nature. You know, it's human nature in the industrial age, for sure. You know, it's, it's the opposite of flow. You know, it's the opposite of what makes one's experience rich and dynamic. You know, when you look at the people who live, you know, 120 years, you know, planting seeds on the hills of the Himalayas or whatever, these are people who are, you know, fully in the moment. You know, they're, they're, they're experiencing the nuances, the kind of Zen and the art of archery um, approach to existence. That that this um, this just uh, you know this just consciousness is the opposite. Um, it's 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 more an artifact of the industrial age, where you know you, where you have to get something done faster than. Uh, 
you know, than your competitor in order to, you know, get more money or get out of work or whatever. They're, they're cracking the whip, you know, mm. it's the, it's the sort of slave mentality just to churn out more stuff. And that's of course is based on, um, on an economy that requires growth and acceleration in order to exist, you know, and that's another program, mm. you know, which is what I'm talking about, that we are blindly surrendering to the agendas of programs rather than programming our, our social systems to support what we want. You know, so this, this gist phenomenon is a result of, you know, having to produce more stuff, which is a result of a very particular um, economic model that we're using to produce our money that was invented and, and, and enforced by a very particular group of people who wiped out the other programs and forced us to use this one. And so it's, it's, it's really hard to unravel um, if you don't see the world through its programs, if you don't see these programs as changeable, as arbitrary, as up for discussion. You know, if you see these programs as given circumstances, as just the way things are, well, this is money, um, then you're screwed. Luckily, a lot of people now, because money's finally failing um, to, to, to meet its requirements, people are looking at it and saying, well, what is this stuff we call money? Mm. And why does it work like this? And who does make it? And why is it a euro instead of a pound instead of a this instead of a that? And who's in charge of policy? And are they corrupt or what? Wait, so you talk about choice isn't always a, a, a good thing, as it were. We're, we're always led to believe that more choice equals, is, you know, is, is a better thing. But actually, you talk about how choice can actually be go against our needs in the book. Could you discuss that a bit? I mean, think of the experience even of just... Um, Going into the supermarket, you know, and seeing the giant lane of, uh, uh, you know, detergent soaps, you know, that there, there'll be, you know, 500 different neon colored plastic bottles filled with laundry detergent for you to use in your automatic washing machine, you know, and you feel like, oh, my gosh, look how many choices I have, you know, but basically you've got, you know, 500 500 versions of the one choice, mm. which is to use an electric, you know, washing machine and detergent with phosphates or whatever to, to wash your clothes. You know, so these are and, and produced ultimately by probably two or three conglomerates, you know, which are owned by the same people anyway. So do you have choice or is it just uh, um, kind of the forced choice? And then you can take half an hour to pick between all of these you know, basic equivalents. And when I look at the, um, the, the internet space and, and computers, it's as very often um, offering people the same kind of, of forced choice or premature choice that you must make a choice in order to engage with the program. But that choice um, is predetermined by a database or by the needs of a company or by someone other than you, you know, and what what are these? What are all these uh, uh, choices necessarily about? You know, so you look at something as simple as Facebook. You know, are you a man or a woman? You know, what year were you born? That that you're you're listing all of these things to really in order to conform to it to a database to a really a consumer profile mechanism of of, of information that they're selling as we speak to God knows who. Um, are these choices I need to make in order to engage? Well. No, they're choices I'm being required to make in order to, in order to do something. I mean, technology always gives us more choice. I mean, that's part of what 
it's for. You know, fire gave us the choice to live in the in cold places. You know, electricity gives us the ability to stay up at night and read when you know we couldn't do it. Well, certainly not as easily as candlelight. Um, you know, the, we we get more and more choice, the more and more technologies we have, but. Um, just because we have these choices open to us doesn't mean we have to make them. Mm. You know, that's sort of the beauty of the uh, of the Amish is they they um, they choose not to they choose not to employ stuff that's going to force choices that they're not ready to make. You know, so they don't know yet, say whether um, you know people should be able to use cell phones in their houses. Um, they because they just don't know um, what choice they don't know how how to deal with it. Um, you know, if if a phone rings in my house, should I answer it? Should I not? So rather than deal with that whole array of choices to make of decision points, um, they're forestalling it. They're saying, well, wait, you know, right now you can use a cell phone outside your house, you know, if you want, but um, you can't, you can't use it inside. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's like call waiting. It's like, what did that do? Call waiting forces you to choose between the person you're talking to and the other one who's calling in. It's uncomfortable for a lot of people because it means that, well, look, you, I can, whatever. I don't really care enough about you. I'm going to go see who that is. <laughs> and then I'll come back and tell you if they're more important than you. Hmm. You know, that's um, socially difficult for me. I'd prefer, um, you know, well, now we have caller ID on our call waiting so we can see who it is calling hmm. in, you know. But but it's 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 just more... It's just more choices, um, and and that's sort of what I'm what I'm, I'm trying to uh, help people see is that that sometimes you don't have to choose, you don't have to conform to the database, you don't have to um, select on its behalf. You can withhold, you know, you can withhold your choice, and the 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 world still goes on. You know that that you end up in some ways when you make choices is when you you end things, and I understand feeling compelled to make a choice, like which house are we going to buy, who am I going to marry, which thing. But you know, you can also keep those choices alive. So, you know, I don't know, I mm. I don't know yet. I don't know if I want to get married or not. I don't know if I want to have sex with this one or not. I just going to see how it goes, you know. And and living in that space is um, feels sometimes diametrically opposed to the biases of a medium that's consistently asking us to make our choice so it can then deliver it to us. Mm. Uh, do you think that's maybe why perhaps like companies like, well, particularly Apple, do so well because they kind of remove the choice elements in some cases? Like I'm thinking more of like the App Store here and things like that and the kind of walled garden aspects. Do you think we, we, we do tend to gravitate towards walled gardens uh, and choices being taken away from us? Do you think uh, we're going to see more of this or why do you think this is happening? Um, why we're moving towards which kinds? Like, for example, with Apple, a lot you know they're hugely popular now, and a lot of people right. complain about them because they they make choices for you. You know, they, like the iPad's not going to play Flash. You know, the App Store you have to, you know, go through hoops, and the whole thing is just walled off from the rest of technology. It almost seems right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's part of yeah. I mean, that was sort of the AOL model originally it's mm. like we're going to give you the internet without you having to be out on the real net you know with the dangerous child hackers who are going to hurt you somehow yeah well i mean why once people didn't have the fear of that anymore then aol kind of disappeared mm. um you know now uh it is interesting you know that that 
on the one hand, Apple, you know, its, its whole image was about individuality and creativity and promoting the agency of the individual, where in practice, really, what they're doing is creating little safe, you know, the, you know, the walled gardens of Steve, you know, that Steve makes the choices for you. Mm. you know, the problem with Steve making the choices for you, Steve Jobs, I mean, the guy running Apple, yeah. is sometimes he's making them for your benefit and sometimes he's making them for someone else's benefit, you know, or diametrically opposed to your benefits. So my, um, I got an iPad, uh, mainly because there's all these people who want me to write for the iPad, so I really want to see what it is. Um, and I, I don't personally like it, but I got the iPad. I got the plainest one with no 3G or telephony or anything in it, just, you know, uh, wireless and, and Bluetooth. So I could just go through a home network. Um, and I even have a, a, a phone that has, a, you know, Bluetooth tethering that I pay for. Mm. And it turns out the iPad will not do Bluetooth tethering. No, it <laughs> it's won't annoying. tether to a phone. And it's not that AT&T or Vodafone or anybody paid or subsidized my iPhone in any way. It's just been turned off by Apple to try to enforce my buying something else from AT&T or from one of the phone companies. And that's insane. That's ridiculous. That's, um, that's ju ultimately ju that's just wrong. You know, that, that if, if, I'm paying my phone company for the tethering service, and now the device won't, uh, still um, can't hook up to it. Um, then they've then they've really uh, uh, because I understand enough about how this works. I understand that they've simply just violated me and violated trust. Um, and that's then, of course, my justification to jailbreak both devices and now use tethering for free. You know, screw it. I'll stop paying. I tried to go legal. I tried to do it in 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 Steve's way, mm, yeah. but um, um, he pushed me too far. <laughs> you know, and now I mean, not not even that I like. Uh, I mean, I, I have to admit the Mac OS really is easy to use, mm. but um, I'm much more committed to uh, Ubuntu at this point mm. um, because it's just so much lighter and better and. Um, it's just better for the world. <laughs> so <clears throat> um, you talk about the internet being uh, kind of social by nature and networks are, are social by nature. Why, why does business have such a hard time seeing this? Why is it, why, do, why are people trying to always monetize sort of social environments, say like Facebook and stuff like this? And why do they always have such a hard time doing it, do you think? Well, I mean, because in the end, uh, the, the consumer reality and the social reality are, if not if not diametrically opposed, they are uh, they're still um, they cost one another. You know, there's human beings living as anything but consumers um, reduces the efficiency of a consumption-based economy, right? If you're doing something other than consuming or talking about your consuming, which is advertising and helping someone else consume, then what are you doing? You know, you're playing cards, you're having sex, you're thinking about something. Stop, you know, <laughs> get back to work. You know, at least talk about your car, talk about the brand of things you're doing. You know, get, if, if, you, if you're not consuming, you're, or that you're, you're, you are an obstacle 
to the the expansion of the market. Mm. And so, you know, the internet comes along, which is a largely social medium. People were talking to each other on it, you know, and it was seen as a great threat to uh, to consumerism, to to the whole thing. It's why AT and T, which AT and T was offered the net, and they turned it down. They didn't want it because they couldn't see how this would help anything. Bunch of people talking about Star Trek, you know, looked ridiculous to them. Mm. Um, so, so you know, it, it ended up becoming a, a kind of a government thing. Um, until God knows what it is now, some high government corporate hybrid, and soon to be utterly corporate, you know, with no net neutrality or anything. It's going to be a mess. Um, but that's another story. Um, so yeah, people want to socialize on this thing and, you know, different movements come along, whether it's the military or the dot-com movement or, or, you know, one or the other, or, or different authorities come along and try to turn the net into something else, into, um, something to serve one form of business or another. And, um, usually, um, people tend to still socialize. The social imperative tends to outweigh um, these other ones. Um, and that's why the latest one now, you know, which is, okay, we're just going to be social, you know, with Facebook and Orkut and, and you know, LinkedIn and all these, um, uh, you know, uh, purportedly social interfaces are there to sort of, well, if we can't beat them, join them. Mm. Let's leverage this social phenomenon to our ends. But the more they leverage it, the less genuinely social it becomes, the less it, the less it seems to fulfill this more evolutionary human urge for connection and transmission of values and, you know, the, the forging of new groupings. Mm. So um, we'll see. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Facebook will go the way of all the ones before it. You know, it looks so permanent and indestructible now, but so did MySpace, so did Friendster, so did AOL. You know, so did tripod and everything else, and they all, um, they all go away because they all end up, uh, they all end up revealing themselves as not not necessarily you know corrupt as in the case of uh, Facebook or so evil as in you know uh, uh, Zuckerberg and that whole group, but just um, not really serving the function that people are hungering for, hmm. which is which is this. Uh, a sense of, of deeper connection to more people at a time. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about in the book about uh, people being con uh, contacts, not content. Could you discuss that a little bit? Well, I mean, on the net, I mean, I used to go to all of these conferences and I'd have to go speak at, and everyone was talking about how contact content is king. You know, that in the end, what the net's about is the stuff that we're going to put online, this data, there's books, there's movies and whatever, and people are going to download it. And that's what it's going to be. The net is basically television or publishing. And, you know, there'll be this little CB radio phase where people think they want to talk to each other or like ham radio back in the 20s or something before real broadcast kicked in. And then it'll go away and it'll become ours again. You know, Time Warners and, and, and every other big Viacom media company out there will, will run this thing. You know, that people would rather be watching 3D Avatar on the home giant screen than talking to some you know, fellow intellectual about politics or about, you know, whatever it is they want to talk about. Yeah. And um, I always thought and saw the, the unique um, quality of the Internet was 
contact, that what made it sexy, what made it so interesting to people was that you could connect to other humans online, that it's that it is the, the network is the thing. It's your connections to other people, your ability to to engage. You know, it's not even their their contact or the, their the the content of your friends and associates that you're so interested in as purely being able to touch them. You know, we had been decentralized by our media for depending on how far back you go, certainly since television, you know, it's a very isolating, alienating marketing tool, you know, that, that, that alienated us from one another, you know, and now we got the internet, which is really, uh, in many ways, remedial help for a society that lost the ability to connect with each other, hmm. to have contact. And that when, when you remember, if you can even, when the moments that you were actually really excited about the internet, it really wasn't that you were able to stream something that you could watch on cable television anyway. It was that there was this other person, that there were people out there. You know, whether they're out there in Second Life and World of Warcraft or on the IRC or the chat boards or the BBSs, it's, it's the people. Who am I going to find? What are they going to feel? How are we going to connect? Um, those are the questions that, that ignite and excite us. Yeah. So when did... Um... Uh, file sharing term from something that was kind of new and exciting to something that became a dirty word. What, where was that kind of crossover point? And you know, what, what, why is file sharing such a dirty word these days? Do you think? Well, I guess because um, I mean, on a certain level, it's because people exploited it. You know, they they abused it. Mm. You know, everything online um, is based on on sharing technologies. I mean, the 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 net itself was created in part for people to share computing resources. You know, computers, computer chips used to be really expensive, and they were inside these big, expensive computers. And you didn't really have your own. You had a terminal, and you could, you know, you know buy, rent, or borrow time on a big processor somewhere. So some university would have a big machine, and you would get a few hours to run your program on their on their computer so you could see, you know, the answer to your question. So you've got some big math problem or, and then you, you write your program and then you run it. Um, so all of these networks are really about sharing those kinds of resources. So it was, it was always biased towards sharing in one way or another, even when you put up a file on a, on a server, you put it up as a, uh, you know, a, a, a shared file mm. uh, or a, a file that only you can read, um, a file that anyone could read but only you can change, or a file that anybody can read or change. And that was a decision you had to make every time you saved a file. Um, and it was your decision to make. You know, even though the, the technology was biased towards sharing, you didn't really have to share or show and all that. Um, the the when when sharing changed was you know eventually you know people developed programs it was always everyone making stuff for the benefit of the collective you know you'd develop a mail program and you'd give it away or ask people for a donation and you know once commercial media ended up in that same system it seemed that well this all this commercial media should also be you know should be free should be part of this um, this world of sharing, you know, and rather than 
um, negotiating or developing a way to participate in the sharing economy. You know, the the commercial music makers were immediately, you know, afraid and, just, you know, just went kind of nuts prosecuting. And they engendered really uh, – great ill will. You know, meanwhile, they were also charging more for CDs than they were for records, even though CDs were cheaper for them to make than records. So they had uh, they had really alienated and angered their consumer. At the same time, giant media conglomerates had bought all of the smaller record companies, so they weren't even really music-loving record people involved in the recording industry. They were just giant conglomerates looking how to extract more value from, you know, really boomers who were rebuying their record collections on, on CD. So all those things combined to engender a real animosity between, you know, the music culture online and the music keepers uh, uh, of of corporate America, and so you got you know really what what you got was was well first it was I guess uh, what was that called uh, Hotline, but um, which was kind of the first distributed uh, uh, client side sharing network, but eventually mm-hmm. Napster, and uh, then then the wars were on. Could this kind of um, can decentralization? You know, it's often seen as the uh... With media, at least, it's often seen as the kind of the holy grail. What a lot of people want—they want to see, you know, uh, big record labels and huge, you know, film companies like Sony and stuff crumble, and you know, everything to be in the hands of the of the public. Surely, can't this be a bad thing sometimes? Though, I mean, for example, uh, this is possibly a bad example actually. But say you wanted to make a large film, a really big film, big budget. How are you going to do that if the media is completely decentralized? If that makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean. It- you don't have to have one or the other. I mean, it's great to have um, big centralized long-distance currencies like the dollar or the euro. It's cool that they're around, but they shouldn't be um, around at the expense of any other kind of local or decentralized currency. I mean, you can have both. You can have big-budget movies coming out of Hollywood, and you can have little budget movies coming up on the net you know it's the the problem is when the highly centralized forces the big corporations and all see themselves as so threatened by the quality of the other members and the other producers in their ecosystem that they use very unfair monopolist um regulations to prevent anyone else from getting in the game, you know, and that could be anything. That could be, um, you know, in America, the um, toy manufacturers, the the large, uh, you know, toy conglomerates had um, imported these products from China that had red paint that had lead in it. So everyone got up in arms, you know, oh my gosh, our kids' toys have lead. So the uh, government and the toy conglomerates get together and create regulations to prevent that from ever happening again. And the way they did it was they designed a toy testing protocol that requires something like fifty or a hundred thousand dollars of testing to be done on any toy that's going to be sold to American children. 
And what that means effectively is that no one but a giant media or giant toy conglomerate can sell toys to American children. So all of the smaller toy companies are put out of business by that. And the smaller domestic toy companies are not the ones, you know, outsourcing their manufacturing and painting to China in the first place, leading to these problems. Mm. So what you've really got is is a giant centralized industries ready to take any opportunity to prevent any decentralized activity from occurring because that costs them business. So, you know, it's it's not that they can't both live in the same world. I mean, Adam Smith, great, you know, kind of economic theorist of, of the, you know, really the late enlightenment, you could even say, um, um, understood that you need to have a balance between smaller and larger businesses. Um, and we just don't have that now because our legal system, our, our, our legislatures are, are so dominated by uh, the, the you know, interest groups of uh, giant, highly capitalized um, and centralized corporations. How can the internet or networks, as it were, and you know, the way we're using networks at the moment, how have they kind of they're starting to dissolve social contract in some way, aren't they? I mean, but we're talking about file sharing and uh, all this kind of thing. I mean, that is really a kind of breach of social contract, isn't it? Right, or people don't even experience social contracts in this new environment. You know, in the book I talk about, you know, the reason people don't, you know, rob my house is not because they're afraid to get caught. It's because there's a social contract. You know, I have friends over and they don't steal things when they when they leave. You know, where. We wouldn't think, you know, twice about stealing files or things, and it seems like it's because um, we 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 believe that because the my having the file doesn't take it away from you, um, it means that that I can have it without um, any ethical conundrum. But that's that's the problem of a of a consumer society where. You know where we where we've abandoned Marx. You know we no longer see the person who created the value, the person who worked as deserving anything. You know, they're so disconnected, they're so distant from us that, you know, the people who work together to make the record, uh, who, who spent all day or all night mixing music or carrying the, the, the tape media from one room to the other, keeping the air conditioner working in the building where the files are being recorded, um, those people don't matter to us. You know, they don't exist anymore. There's just the consumer and the object, you know, and that's, uh, um, the fact is, that's the result of of the kind of uh, uh, industrial age marketing and distancing and everything that we've intentionally done to people. You know, so now we've, we end up kind of um, on the other end of the, the marketing and isolation that we used. And... And we we definitely seem to be moving. Well, we seem to be in this mindset that everything should be a la carte. You know, we, that everything should be free. But the, the interesting thing, and I think you point out in the book as well, is that we almost sort of flip back into an old model, don't we? When we when it comes to producing free content, we tend to like we we expect it now to just be flooded with advertising and things like that. It's a it's a strange kind of dichotomy almost. Right. I mean, as if you know, and it's odd. I mean, people really. Uh, even after the examples of you know HBO or Showtime and everything else, um, people um, you know there's folks like Jeff Jarvis out there, this sort of uh, uh, kind of libertarian net boosters who see advertising as a uh, uh, an unbiased partner 
in the creation of media. Because he really just doesn't understand why Google ads wouldn't create the same quality media as uh, some kind of pay-per-view situation or where people are, are, are using some other funding source to make media. And um, that's a real blind spot for a lot of people. You know, if I put Google ads on my blog, it's going to change the nature of what I write. You know, because now my career is depending on the click-throughs and the views and creating a good bed, a good host for advertising content. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Right, so going back, I mean, going coming full circle, I suppose, to like the kind of the full, you know, the the meaning of your book is program or be programmed. This is the last chapter in the book as well. It's, why is programming so kind of alien to us these days? Why why isn't it being taught to us in schools? Do you think? Um. I think partly because um, most of us in the West see programming as a, a lower level skill, not a higher level skill. We see it as something to be done by, you know, poor brown people in, in third world nations rather than wealthy white people. It requires a few weeks of, of work to learn, which is just, I don't have to spend weeks to learn this thing or a month even to become proficient. That's just too much. You know, I want to be able to walk in and just and just do it. Um, it's because we, we have a, a culture that's slanted against competence. Mm. You know, that's just um, where we're at. We don't have expertise. We don't, ha- we don't want to have expertise. We want to basically consume for our jobs. You know, and that's, that's a really, that's a hard thing. It's also because the companies making this stuff don't really want us looking too closely at it. You know, Microsoft would much rather us be learning how to use Office in school than how to program. You know, Microsoft's programs, for the most part, are made, you know, so there's so that there's less human intervention and less questioning of how these things work rather than more. So when you take a class on computers in school, you're going to learn, you know, how to... Uh, how to use them, not how to uh, program them, how to be a consumer, not how to be a, a producer. And can we all become programmers? And, and should we all become programmers, do you think? Well, I think we should all know that programming exists. That's my first goal. I mean, if I could get to the point where a majority of people in, in just say, in developed nations, if a majority of people know that there is programming, I think that would be a great, great start because then they would understand that the tools they're using are made by people and that they're embedded with purpose, you know, and that they can actually look at it critically and say, is this program doing something I want or is it doing something I don't? Is this program written for me or was this program written for someone else? What does this thing do? You know, that that would be terrific. If people got that, then they'd be able to start – they'd be able to look at government and policy and education and religion. They'd be able to see a lot of the things in their world from the perspective of the programs rather than just the perspective of the consumer or the, the so-called user. Um, no, I don't think that in the next few generations the West will – um, teach basic programming literacy. I think will be rapidly um, succeeded or superseded by um, China, um, Iran, Korea, um, India, where they do teach these things in in elementary school. And I think that um, our nations will struggle. You know, it, it, uh, militarily, economically, I think it's going to be a very interesting hundred years. You know, to watch. 
us just be um, uh, surpassed um, so rapidly. I mean, many of our corporations will survive because they're not American corporations or British corporations anyway. You know, they're, they don't care where the programming comes from. So there will be shareholders, um, wealthy shareholders in enclaves um, on our soil too. But um, uh, in terms of our working classes and, and oh my gosh, um, this is going to be fascinating to watch. Um, but, but I do think within a couple of generations, um, you know, there could be like what there was during the space program in, in the 1960s in America, you know, where people say, okay, the way we can actually compete effectively, you know, in the, in the job and, and, uh, and, and military marketplaces, uh, and, and, and battlefields of the future will be to actually educate our kids in, um, how the technologies running our world function so that even if we can't dominate, uh, our nations will be able to participate with the rest of the world as, as maybe as equals or soon to be equals in the, the development of the systems through which we all live together. Is there a centralized kind of thing or force or person or people that actually gain from us being programmed rather than programmers. Oh, in the short term, yeah. I mean, in the short term, you know, everyone from, from you know, Walmart to Tesco to everybody else, you know, does well. Um, the more we, you know, uh, passively um, consume um, to Murdoch, to everybody. Um, but uh, uh, in the long term, um, it doesn't really serve, it doesn't serve anybody's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't think that there's a conspiracy of people saying, let's make sure that they don't <laughs> learn how to program. Let's make sure people don't understand this. I mean, there, there, there is a strong belief. I mean, I've given talks at places where the people, the entire crowd is like, well, yes, but an elite needs to run this. People are too stupid. The masses are dangerous. They have to be kept in control. What are you saying? You think that really people should become literate? So start asking questions? If everybody asks questions, then how will the world work? You know, so they really believe, and these are generally smaller, wealthier groups, mm. that they are in charge of the world and that it's for everybody's good that people are kept stupid. You know, that, that's, that's, that, they, that they are stupid, that they don't want to get smart, that they just want the clocks to run on time. Um, and, and even if that's true, I don't think we're, we have that luxury anymore. I think it's time that people have to wake up, you know, that, that we can't run this world um, with with uh, with a by a small elite, however benevolently um, they think they're uh, managing things. Hmm. I find it. I think there's one. Th- I've heard you uh, mention this in talks, and I know you always uh, you, you you have it in your book rather. Um, and it's kind of a sort of array of hope in some ways. <laughs> um, in the book, is you talk about uh, people that play computer games becoming players, then cheaters, then modders, then programmers. Could you discuss that? Briefly, um, yeah. I mean, basically, that that there's a uh, there seems to be a natural you know evolution, if you will, of the of the the individual um, relating to interactive tools, and that this might uh, ideally kind of um, replicate or recapitulate the experience of a civilization engaging with media. You know, that a kid gets a, a computer game, he plays it you know out of the box the way it's 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 meant to be played until he gets stuck. Then he goes online and he gets the cheat codes. So then he really comes back to the game now in the in the mode of a cheater. So a person who understands the rules but knows how to get around them, you know, by using infinite ammunition or or special shields or whatever. 
And then, um, you know, after he makes it to the end of the game, if you really like the game, he can go back online and learn um, how to make his own mod, his own modifications of the game, so he can change the location of the game to the you know hallways of his of his high school or 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 to some other thing, or change the weapons and the way they work. And then he uploads his version of the game, and other kids might play it. Um, and if enough people like his game, you know, and the way he modified the game, you know, sure enough, he'll get a, a ping from the game company asking him if he wants a job to learn to come and actually program games. You know, so then he can really move from being a player of the game to a cheater of the game with a bit of agency to an author of the game, which is like a writer or someone who's gained kind of printing press or broadcast capabilities. He's a kind of a content creator to finally being a programmer, to being a platform creator. And um, that, that I hope, you know, that that um, development path is really the same one that, um, that people follow, you know, as they learn to use these technologies, that we move from um, being, you know, entirely passive users of these things to being um, people who can make more active choices about what we do and don't do online, sort of that cheater or meta a meta user to then becoming authors to then becoming full-fledged programmers. And I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's impossible. It's just um, a matter of whether we'll choose to do that. It's, it's all just choice at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, and people right now are a bit, uh, they're feeling lazy and overwhelmed to make that, to make that choice. And what I'm trying to tell them is it's actually easier to make that choice to start seeing things from the position of, of a human being with agency rather than just a, a slave without any. Mm. Oh, thanks for talking to us. Um, the, uh, obviously, you, your new book's called Program or Be Program. Where can people pick that up? Um, ideally at orbooks.com. It'll be cheapest for them if they, if they type the URL orbooks.com, O-R-B-O-O-K-S.com, um, and buy it that way. And it comes straight from a... Uh, you buy it on that site, but it gets shipped straight from the UK, so they don't pay any uh, crazy tax or whatever country they're in. Oh, excellent. And uh, what I mean, obviously, you've recently done dig- yeah, Digital Nation, which seems to kind of run slightly in parallel to this book as well. I mean, have you got any other kind of projects coming up after this? Or? Yes, but they'll have to see. They'll have to see what they are. <laughs> ah, <big> secrets. <laughs> Just check on Rushkoff.com. More things. More things are happening every week. Excellent. Bloom with Bloom's Cabana, the bagpiper, 
with Thanks a Devil. And finally, Al Boli with Midnight Stars and You. Thanks for listening.
Thanks, Daddy Tank, for another awesome MySpace Heroes. Uh, so the interview today was, was with Douglas Rushkoff, and uh, you can check him out on the web. I forgot to mention it, Rushkoff.com. Um, really, really good, inter- in, uh, interesting interview. Um, I always really enjoy having Doug on. Um, he's one of these people that's kind of pioneered thinking about the internet, at least uh, for, a, for a very long time, pretty much since its kind of popularization. That's, that's quite, a, quite a claim to fame. <laughs> I'm also quite pleased that he's... Uh, Find these new models for actually releasing his book, allbooks.com. You should go and check them out. They're really uh, interesting kind of project, as it were. So hopefully more companies will take their approach and we'll, be, you know, we'll get more fairly priced and uh, fairly paid <laughs> authors. Anyway, uh, we'll be back in two weeks, uh, as I explained in, well, about to explain in Behind Closed Doors. Um, this show will now be every other Wednesday. Now we've got the site sorted. <laughs> so we'll be back in a fortnight. And you can get the show on sittingnow.co.uk, uh, on alterati.com. And uh, yeah, if you want to check out the archive of our old shows, we've got some great interviews of uh, all sorts of people <laughs> at sittingnow.co.uk. And yeah, and hopefully, I think at some point we might even transfer all the old ones across to Alterati as well. Um, but yeah, we'll let you know about that soon. And we'll see you in a fortnight. Bye bye.